Hi, I'm Jayan Sriram and welcome to In Focus, the Hindu's analysis podcast. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to In Focus. This is the second of our two-part series on the Padmanabha Swami Temple in Kerala. We are using the news peg of a recent Supreme Court ruling on the temple and its managerial affairs to basically have a long chat with historian Manu S. Pillai about the temple's fascinating history. This is, of course, one of the most interesting and storied religious structures in all of India. Part 1 was out yesterday and dealt with the temple's origin stories. We linked to that episode, of course. And in part 2 today, we come more to the present and to the story of the treasures housed within the walls of the temple, which is, of course, a big part of the reason why there's so much curiosity about it in the first place. So here's Manu S. Pillai again. Manu, in the last episode, uh, we went over some of the temple's origin stories and you gave us this fascinating narrative about how Marthanda Varma, the first ruler of the Travancore royal family, comes to use the symbolism of the temple to build a story around his reign and his conquests, kind of fusing the political with the divine. So how do we tie this up now to the stories of the immense treasures that the temple is said to hold? So uh, the wealth, now one thing we know is from earlier accounts of the temple, you know, you have periods when the temple is shocked, you have periods when the temple is facing crisis. We have some evidence that the temple was a much, you know, as I said, it was a thatched structure. So clearly the kind of wealth we associate with it today was not there all the time. It was not there mm-hmm. throughout history. It was accumulated perhaps in the last 200, 300 years. That's the phase, that's the period we're talking about. The question is how? Now, as I said, Martha Dorma came out of Vaynard, which was relatively a, a minor affair in, in the larger context of Kerala. The wealthiest ruling family, despite the, the Portuguese cutting down his power, despite the Dutch cutting down his power, uh, despite the collapse of the feudal system, was still the Zamorin of Calicut in the mid 18th century. The Zamorin was still extremely powerful. You have all these, so the Rajas in Koilon, the Kochi Raja, the Zamorin of Calicut, the Koltri Raja in, in North Malabar, these are major uh, rulers who, who rule over substantial ports. And these port cities, although the territorial, if you look at the sizes of the kingdoms, these Travancore rulers or these, these Malayali rulers uh, controlled, they're not particularly impressive compared with, say, the large kingdoms that exist in Tamil Nadu under the post-Vijayanagar Nayaka states, the kind of you know kingdoms that existed in, in Mysore, for example. Compared to all this, these are, these are just all fish. But the difference is these are trading kingdoms. So, you know, Dilip Menon, the scholar, often refers to them as houses by the sea, which is where they don't even need to control too much of the land. The, the money generated through trade, the money generated through commerce is so significant that these are able to accumulate a lot of wealth. So when Martha Norma defeats a lot of these kingdoms, a lot of treasure falls into his hands. So it is very mm-hmm. likely that a good portion of the treasure that we see today in the Padmanabha Swami temple other than the bit that he expended in his construction project, uh, projects, in the bit that he expended on uh, military expansion and so on, there would have been a substantial quantity that he actually put inside the temple. Again, you know, link it to the earlier arguments on his own construction and, and sort of linking his own family identity and dynastic identity to the temple. The same principle applies, which is that if you don't want to be seen as somebody who steals the, the, the property and goods that belong to equally old royal families that you've defeated, as I said, the earlier custom was you defeat them and make them vassals. You don't touch their, their goods. 
I, you know, that's that that was the norm. That was a decent thing to do as per the earlier earlier system. So if you're if you're annexing their states and seizing their treasure, holding on to it makes you look bad. Whereas giving it to the deity, putting it in a temple makes you look somewhat better because you're not directly claiming it. So it's very likely that a lot of the gold and a lot of the treasure that you see was actually originally placed there. The temple would have had some of its own, of course. The temple would not have been completely devoid of treasure. But a good bulk of it would have been the, the consequence of Martha and Varma's conquests in uh, other parts of Kerala. But there's also, uh, of course, then he would have made a lot of gifts himself from his other sources of income. He had all kinds of economic monopolies on, on the spice trade and things like that. He uh, reduced the Dutch allied with the East India Company originally on pretty good terms. He, ironically enough, you know, uh, today, a lot of hoo-ha is made by the right wing in Kerala about the Mysorean invasions of Malabar, so under Hyder Ali and Tipu Sultan. The irony is that the original person to first invite Hyder Ali into Kerala was Martanda Varma. When he was facing resistance and rebellion in conquered territories, he thought the appearance of a foreign power would help. He then quickly, you know, pulled back that application. He said, no thanks, I've managed to get it under control. And so Hyder never really came into Kerala at that time, but that's when the original idea was planted that perhaps there was something to see in Kerala and that perhaps Hyder Ali should send troops, which Hyder Ali did uh, not in that decade, but later in the 1760s. So, um, you know, so he's got all these, all the golden material that he's got from these conquests, that's probably being placed in the temple. Later, what happens is uh, you have in the 19th century kings themselves making grants. So, for example, you have uh, the composer King Swati Tirunal uh, supposedly donating 100,000 uh, coins in, in somewhere in the, in the early 19th century. He ruled from 1829 to 1846, so somewhere in that period. I don't know the exact date, but there is this instance where he did it. And we do have a record in by the court historian Changuni Menon, who was completely fascinated that the Raja sat there for the full process and personally put each of the coins into the into the vault or into the into the I don't know whatever vessel had been assigned for the to make that donation. So you have royal grants like that also once the Travancore royal family is established. But I have a suspicion of another nature, and I mean a lot of this is speculation because you know records for this I don't know where they will exist. One will have to really scour the records of the temple to find it. Um, right. But another case where a lot of money could have come into the temple is when Tipu Sultan uh, and Hyder Ali and Tipu Sultan brought Malabar under their control. And what we find is a lot of the royal families of Malabar, including the Zamorin of Calicut, they fled to Travancore because they were unable to. So the Zamorin of Calicut, when Hyder first uh, attacks, he sends his family to Travancore. And he then, you know, sets his own palace on fire and perishes in the flames because he doesn't want to renounce or leave his kingdom. He's unwilling to do that. Equally, he's unwilling to, uh, you know, convert to Islam or whatever it is that Hyder, he fears Hyder will, is, will inflict on him. So he burns himself and dies. But what happens is that in that Hyder Tipu period, there are these royal families from Malabar, the Zamorans family, the Koltari family, all kinds of minor rajas as well, aristocratic families, Brahmin families. Many of these end up living in Travancore for years and years and years. So I think the Zamorans family lives for as many as 12 years in Travancore, uh, you know, during Tipu Sultan's time. It's only after the Second Anglo-Mysore War in 1792, once Tipu is defeated by the East India Company and Malabar is taken over by the East India Company, that these royal families feel secure enough to return to their place. So if you're living in, so look at it, right? so the, the Zamorin, for example, was an independent prince, the most important prince in Kerala. So before the, before Martandorma created his Morajapam, which became the grandest festival, and, and the Lakshadipam, which became the grandest festival in all of Kerala, 
Traditionally, in the Tirunavaya temple in Malabar, there used to be something called the Mamangam done every 12 years. The person presiding over that was the Zamorin of Calicut. So the Zamorin was the primary figure till Martandavarma's enterprise sort of, you know, unseated him from prominence. But the Zamorin would have been extremely aware of his prestige, his, his genealogy and all of that. So for the Zamorin to come and stay 12 years and his family to stay 12 years in Travancore would not have been easy if they were living for free. So the Travancore Raja officially, as a person who was called Dharma Raja, as somebody who gave protection to Dharma in a time when you know there were there were Islamic invaders in North Mal in Malabar, um, you know they the Travancore Raja obviously couldn't charge rent from any of these people. It would look bad. You know these are people who come to mm. sanctuary. You don't you don't make them pay. So they, their needs would have been taken care of. And look, this is for about 10, 12 years. Equally, the people coming, they're not completely destitute. These are people of royal families. These are people of bloodlines that are, you know, perhaps in many ways even more important than Travancore. Travancore survived. Travancore is powerful now. But these families that have come are families of, of tremendous prestige. So it's very likely that what they would have done then is also made uh, donations into the coffers of the temple because that would have been an interesting compromise, right? So the Raja, Travancore Raja is not taking money from them. He, of course, continues to extend charity and support and, and, and sort of, you know, sanctuary to these people. They don't feel like freeloaders because they're royalty themselves. They don't feel like freeloaders because they're sort of showing their regard and gratitude by making donations to the temple. And that sort of is, I think, another way a, a good chunk of the treasure would have ended up in the temple. These these people who came from Malabar when they were when they had to flee because of the Mysorean invasions, it's very likely they would have also made donations to the Padmanabhaswami temple. And you know, you have references to uh, you know these findings of Arab Arabic inscriptions and coins with Arab symbols, etc., on it in in Travancore. Now, the place where the Arabs were dominant were Calicut. You know, it was Calicut under the Zamorans of Calicut uh, who, who sort of built up an alliance with the Arabs. Calicut as a city emerged because of the cooperation of its rulers with Arab traders and, and so on. Koilon, uh, Cochin uh, was where the Jews dominated for a long time. Koilon, which was closer to Travancore, had Syrian Christians as its chief mercantile community. So the association of Arabs really was largely with Calicut. Calicut was their prime center on the Malabar coast. So if you're saying that there is part of the treasure has a sort of Arabic, uh, you know, prominence to it, it's very likely that it emerged from Calicut. So there's, I mean, these are speculations, as I said, till the the inventor inventorying of the of the thing is, is has been done of the treasure and the hoard has been done. But till it's actually studied properly, still it's studied by experts who actually understand these things, we really won't be able to trace where these goods have come from. But you know, there are good chances that. Uh, not all of it was royal donations, that a good chunk of it was booty recovered during war. It was it the stuff that Martandorma seized from these Rajas, he dispossessed and sent into exile. And equally, my own view is that a good portion of it would have come in the form of these exiled Rajas from Malabar, who having come and stayed in Travancore for 10-12 years, would have necessarily felt the need to show their gratitude in a way that did not make them look bad, that did not make their royal hosts look bad. And that, that sort of the platform that allowed it was temple donation. Right. So you've pointed out, I think, very rightly that um, there's a lot of attention given, especially when, you know, the vaults were inspected, etc., to the uh, value of the treasure. Mm -hmm. you know, people said it's worth trillions or whatever it is. Yeah. But you pointed out that, um, you know, it's not it's not the value rather than what it represents about the history of that time, what we can know about that time. Um, what is the in what's the kind of state of the inventory that has been done um, in terms of what's been discovered, what do we know that exists and what is still to be done? So, you know, um, there is, of course, the big B vault, which has still not been opened. This is the one, right. apparently, that's directly under the, the Sri Kovil or under the main shrine of Padmanabhaswami. Uh, 
I have, a, I mean, people think that, you know, this may perhaps hold the largest, you know, the greatest collection in it, nothing like the other walls that have been opened so far. My own sense is that this probably, I mean, there may be a certain amount of treasure or whatever in it, but it's also likely that this is where older relics are housed. For example, you know, since it's directly under the Sri Koval, under the, the sanctum, it's possible, for example, that the old uh, wooden image of the deity is perhaps stored here, you know, because that was the wooden image that was replaced with the current image by Mahatma So you can't just discard the old image, it has to be kept somewhere. So unless that has been found, I don't think it's been found in any of the other walls. So it's very likely that you know, items like that, articles like that, which have, which have religious sanctity or which possessed an earlier religious sanctity, they would perhaps be housed directly under the sanctum. But, you know, that one's still not been opened. The, the new administrative committee is to decide whether or not to open it. And that is a religiously charged question. A lot of people do feel that, you know, these things should remain in the temple. The state has no business poking its nose under the shrine of the temple of the, of the deity to find out what is there and so on and so forth. Of course, the auditor Vinodza in his report says that this particular vault was opened uh, over half a dozen times in the last two, two and a half decades. So, you know, one is conflicted about, about uh, an issue like this. About the rest of the things in it, now you only a few glimpses have really escaped. For example, there were references to these uh, figurines and idols that were really magnificent, you know, studded with diamonds and things like that. These 18 foot long chains of made of gold, uh, sacks full of grain made of gold, uh, of course, mm. coins of all kinds of all of all varieties, uh, jewelry in, in in a great extent. I actually know one of the people who was in, involved in the process of, of of making the inventory, and I do have I have heard you know things of great interest. But you know because it was done confidentially, it doesn't make sense to to reveal everything on a public platform. But what is there seems so. This is why I have an issue when, for example, well-meaning people say that oh you know there's so much wealth here. You're saying it's worth one hundred you know one hundred thousand rupees. And so on. You can wipe out the national debt. You can build roads and bridges with it. I find a major problem with that. I find it extremely uncomfortable because we're not talking about blocks of gold that that, that you know that are thirty years old. This is material mm. collected. This is a hoard with items that are as as old as one thousand years. You know, you can't simply melt down figurines and crowns and jewelry and make roads and bridges out of it. These are artifacts that are part of our material heritage. These are not these are not lumps of gold waiting to be. To be to be turned into something else. These are actually, you know, sculpted, shaped. Uh, you know, there are vessels made of gold. There are these ornaments made of gold. There's a lot of history in these material or in these material goods that are kept in the temple. These, the value of it is not merely monetary. The value of it is also in a heritage sense, in a historical sense. So I have, uh, you know, very serious reservations about these suggestions that uh, the gold be utilized for public good. And that's not, you know, entirely valid. Besides. Even in a legal sense, the temple exists as a legal entity. It is allowed to own possessions, and having possessions beyond a certain number, as far as I know, in the law is not a, is not illegal. So, if the temple is extremely wealthy in terms of its if it's of its fixed assets or of its these physical material uh, possessions that it has, it belongs to the temple. I don't think uh, you can right. unilaterally take over that and melt it down to build roads. You have precedents, as I said, where kings of Travancore take loans from the temple. They sort of you know, take money out of the temple and then repay it with interest. So that also is historic proof that the temple was seen as its own entity. It was not for the king to go and do as he as he desired, even when the kings were in power. So, you know, there is a tradition showing that the temple is allowed to retain its material goods and its worldly possessions. And I think, you know, it, it, it would be cultural vandalism to melt down artifacts that are centuries old and then make roads and bridges out of them. What is more reasonable, I do feel, is 
replacing a few of these items, taking a few of these items, it, one doesn't want all the sacks of grain to be displayed in public. One doesn't want all the jewelry to be displayed in public. But I think it's perfectly possible to take out a few samples and put them up in a museum because that kind of thing, mm. it's sort of, you know, it's a win-win for both sides. Right? You, you don't, you get to keep your treasure safe and sound in the walls as they've been all these centuries. But equally, you also throw open glimpses of what there is to the larger public. Because, as I said, just for the same reason that you cannot melt down historical artifacts and make roads, equally these artifacts are contributions of an entire society. You know, there were people, for example, who had no access to the temple for the longest time, till 1936. People deserve to be able to see what it is their ancestors have placed through a feudal system, through a system that was extremely unfair. You know, what is in the temple at the end of the day was created, whether it was donated by kings, whether it was donated by other people, it comes out of a feudal ecosystem. It comes out of a system where everybody was a contributor. That temple, the masons who built it, they may not have been allowed in the temple once it was sanctified, but they are the ones who built the temple. So too, it is our ancestors, it is a society's, uh, you know, forebears who've actually created the wealth that is in the temple. And I think they deserve the right to be able to at least view some of the articles that are in the temple. So I think it's reasonable to expect that the committee or whatever they they sort of you know bring out a few of these pieces and put them on display so that students learn it you know generates interest people start learning things and taking a greater interest in in their own heritage keeping it under lock and key i think would be quite a, a tragedy right and so you know where do you, where do you see the kind of ownership uh, situation going with the supreme court's recent order do you think that that's going to make any kind of change in you know at least uh, catching you know getting more information about what's um, inside these walls getting more information out to the public i mean i that entirely depends on the temple right as, as to how much mm. information they want to make public now what is interesting is in the last decade or so that this case has been going on now some serious allegations have been made about you know financial impropriety accounts not being kept properly etc i'm referring to gopal subramanian's two reports the first report was rather yeah. glowing but the second report was quite the opposite it was scathing in many ways vinod rai's report again refers to certain you know, anomalies in the accounts and so on these are not questions that would go away easily they do need answers as far as even the devotees of the temple are concerned you know if you're going there even now the devotees go and who put in that hundred rupee note they're actually making a lot contribution to the temple for the upkeep of the temple so it's fair that you know at least these allegations and and, and the, the discrepancies that were found earlier i think they should be addressed certainly and it's up to the committee to do that uh, in terms of the the, the wealth or the, or the gold etc in the temple itself that i don't think you know, anybody can force the temple to do something against their will. That is entirely the temple's prerogative. And I think that it's fair to sort of leave it to the temple. Although I say that, you know, they should ideally create a museum. I don't intend that you know, anybody should go and force them to do that. It is, it is at the end of the day, the temple is an institution in its own right. In a society where we, if we believe that, you know, institutions, individuals, they're allowed to have whatever say they have over their own property and their own belongings, then, you know, that principle extends to everything. What, where it doesn't extend is this idea that, you know, the accounts, etc. Because at the end of the day, it's a public institution. So your accounts have to be in order. How it's being done, that needs to be transparent. All of that, of course, uh, needs to be done. So that, I would say, is there. The other thing, of course, is uh, on ownership, right? So nobody really owns the temple. The, the temple is its own owner. Deity is the owner of the temple. What you find is the Maharaja of Travancore, or the head of the Travancore ex-royal family, retains his right as the custodian of the temple or the chief or the chief trustee of the temple so you know ever since martandorma's time there are these rituals that are annually done about three or four in a year 
in which the Raja and members of the, of the ex-royal family have a serious role to play. So for ritual purposes, they do have a role in the temple. And, you know, that, uh, of course, the, the Supreme Court order is also upheld that. The Supreme Court orders also brought in the other element, which is in a, in a compromise, it has given the state a certain amount of oversight over the temple, which is good, mm. I think, for accountability, for checks and balances, and for preserving the future interests of the temple. Now, Orthodox people may want the temple to stay in the unilateral control of the, of the ex-royal family, but the thing is, uh, they were able to control it when they were in power. They were, they were also the government when they did it. It was, it was not as though, you know, it was just one family controlling, they were also the government at that time. So now what's happened is times have changed. It does make sense to have checks and balances to ensure that the, uh, you know, they've lost power now. So you can't really leave a major public institution like this entirely in the hands of a single family. And because you never know how, you know, future generations will turn out, what their personality mm. will be. So it's useful to have a certain, you know, oversight in some way. So what happened now is they've delegated everyday administration of the temple to the committee, which is interesting. Some I, I've seen some accounts where people are trying to say, oh, but the Raja is still supreme. The committee will work under the Raja's orders. My reading of the Supreme Court judgment does not suggest it because the Supreme Court judgment gives very clear exceptions where the Raja is supreme. So for expenses mm -hmm. beyond uh, 15 lakhs, for certain things involving over a crore of rupees, for changes in ritual activities, for changes in fundamental practices, in these areas, the Raja's approval is required. So by listing out five exceptions clearly, what the court is basically indicating is that the norm will be ruled by the committee. The exception will be deferring to the Raja's, uh, you know, uh, views or opinions on these core five matters. So the committee is going to be in charge. The committee has the head priest on it. The committee has a district judge as the chairperson. It has a representative of the central government. It has a representative of the Kerala government. And it has a nominee who's put there by the Raja's family. It could even be a junior member of the Raja's family. There's no limitation on who the Raja nominates. So, in effect, the everyday management of the temple, which so far was in the hands of the single trustee or the single family, now that power needs to be shared with four other people. It could be the Raja's nominee or, or relative or whoever the Raja places there, plus a committee of, of, of other people who represent other interests, including a judicial figure, including people who represent both the, the local state government as well as the central, uh, the, the union government. And the irony is, of course, it's a return to the old system in the pre-Martandorma days, when it was again a council that actually governed the temple. The Maharaja only had half a vote. It was really the council that controlled the Etarayogam that controlled the temple. So it's interesting that we've you know, come back into a system where a, a committee will, will determine the temple's everyday activities. But really, you know, as I wrote in my, in my article in the Hindu a few days ago, the real question is also about the future inheritance of the position of trustee. So the matrilineal system often is seen as inheritance from uncle to nephew. The word itself means that. Marimakaptayam is the word, which basically means uncle to nephew. That's the Marimagan means your nephew. But uh, in, in practice, Marimakaptayam doesn't work that way. If, for example, there are three sisters and they have three sons and three, three daughters of their own. All the people born in the female line are equal members of the family. And they're all considered right. siblings and they're all considered members of the same uh, core uh, dynasty or whatever. So the custom is the eldest male in all of these families combined becomes the male head of the family. The eldest female of all branches taken together became becomes the senior female uh, member in the family. So in and and you know and this has worked in practice to this day. For example, the Zamorans of Calicut have a trusteeship over the the famous Guruvayur Temple in in towards the northern part of Kerala, and the Zamorans are a family that have over eight hundred members. You know in the in the ex royal family. 
Now, these are 800 members of who come from three branches. So, the whenever a Zamorin passes away, they check who the next oldest person in all of these branches is. That person inherits the title of Zamorin Raja, which, by the way, is the title that is still recognized. There's still a, I think, 60 or 69,000 rupee allowance that's paid to that title. All of that is still there. You, the same with the Cochin royal family. You find that there are, I think, four Tavaris or four branches in the Cochin royal family. The Valyambran, or the head of the family, is the eldest male born in all of these families. Travancore is not such a large family. Travancore only has 37 members. But what is interesting is that for the last nearly 100 years, power has been in the hands of one side of this family. The last junior Maharani of Travancore had two sons. So firstly, her son became the last Raja. Her second son, when the last Raja died in 1991, her second son was the oldest person. And then her, her daughter's son is the current head of the family. and He was born in 1949. The senior Maharani's branch, she only had two daughters. So there were no immediate men to claim power any time in the last few decades. She herself did rule in the 1920s for about seven years, but she didn't have sons. Her daughters also, her older daughter had, had first a series of, I think, five daughters, and then she had a son in 1953. The younger daughter had a son in 1955. So currently, although the junior Maharani's branches control the temple since 1931, whenever this current Raja uh, passes away, the next four or five men come from the branch of the senior Maharani's family. And okay. relations between these two branches have been extremely uh, you know, difficult for the last uh, very many years. In fact, my, my book, The Ivory Throne, basically is about the, the dynamics between these two Maharani's and how it ended up with the junior Maharani essentially you know, uh, holding on in Trivandrum and, and sort of cornering the real authority and power in the family, while the senior Maharani, even her own palace was deemed the property of the junior Maharani's son. And she went off to Bangalore. Her entire family sort of left for Bangalore and Madras, and and they live there, and you know they they don't, and because of these uh, the animosity between the two branches, they have sort of not been involved in the temple since 1931. Now, mm -hmm. what I fear is that a, an attempt will be made to, to say, oh my God, this junior Rani's branch has been in control for all these years. It would be unfair to divest them of control. But the Supreme Court order is very clear. The Supreme Court order says that the, the, the trusteeship is not for any one ruler to give away to anybody. It will have to continue in the old Marumakatayam system. And the Marumakatayam system is clear that whoever is the eldest member in the family, all branches taken together, is the person who gets the trustee's position. So in that sense, what is going to happen in future, it may not happen for 10 years or 20 years, but what will happen at some point is that after control for a century or so in the junior Maharani's branch, you will find that members of the senior Maharani's branch who were in many ways, who had no option but to leave Trivandrum and go, who, you know, so much for being a family that ruled over the place. When they come to Trivandrum, they don't, they have to stay in hotels because, you know, their grandmother's palace was also deemed the property of the junior Maharani's son. And the palace in which she lived and her children were raised now houses an institution named after the junior Maharani's son. So given that, they actually come and stay in hotels when they're in Trivandrum. So it'll be very interesting to see how that switch takes place, whether it will happen quietly, whether some kind of new court case will emerge where, you know, one branch says, no, you know, we deserve to remain, remain in charge because to argue that will be to directly challenge what is clearly stated in the Supreme Court judgment. And... And this is, I mean, even if this happens in 2030, there are documents even from 1948 listing the members of the family. So based on that, it's very difficult to deny the claims of the senior Maharani's branch. Uh, but yeah, and, and the other question is also in the future, you know, the time, times have changed, right? So uh, more, although one branch still lives in a palace and so on, 
younger generations of the junior Maharani, of the senior Maharani's branch, for example, you know, one of her great grandsons is actually a surgeon in Calicut. He lives in Kerala. He works in Calicut okay. as a surgeon, as a professional. He's a member of the royal family, but you know, he's also a professional. And I find that very interesting, which is that this is exactly how the Zamorin's family also is. None of them live in palaces. The last Zamorin's palace was a flat. It was an apartment. You know, so mm -hmm. it's okay. interesting that times have changed, and you know, the title may continue like that. But the people, the people who get that title are much more sort of uh, humble in their in their current circumstances. Uh, by no stretch are they poor people. You know, they're still uh, you know pretty well off and and all of that. Mm. But they do earn their living. They do live as professionals. They've got small businesses. You know, so for example, the, the next in line is uh, is a retired businessman in, in Bangalore uh, in called Balagopal Varma. The one after mm. him is actually in Chennai, uh, Sri Kumar Varma, who's a novelist. He lives in Chennai. Uh, the person after that has his own, he's, I think, retired from business and lives in Sydney in Australia. The next one, Jay Gopal Varma. So the person was Venu Gopal Varma. The next is Jay Gopal Varma. Jay Varma just uh, is an artist trained at an atelier in Philadelphia. And he's actually a painter who now lives in Bangalore and is preparing for his first uh, art exhibition featuring women from the from the great Indian epics. And you know, what is interesting is these are people who, who have uh, you know, individual lives of their own. They have careers of their own. Very much mm -hmm. like the Zamorans, I think the current Zamorin retired from some government department as, you know, in, in, in a bureaucratic position. And, you know, very, you know, lives that you and I can relate to. It's no longer lives in palaces and, and things like that. And that is another interesting leap that will happen in the future, which is that the trustee will also become, a, will also be a much more ordinary kind of Raja. It will not be a Raja who, who is associated with palaces and some kind of outlandish, uh, you know, semi-feudal way of life. Uh, when when the doctor in Calicut, when the surgeon in Calicut gets his turn, it will be quite interesting to see the ex-surgeon uh, you know, serve his role as Padmanabhadasa in leading the deity during <laughs> right. his professions to the sea. Yeah, Manu, I think we'll, um, on that note, we'll end what's um, been a really fascinating chat all through. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, bye.